The Disciplined Investor is underwritten by Interactive Brokers, the professional's gateway to the world's markets. Their clients enjoy enhanced price execution via IB smart routing and lowest cost access to stocks, options, futures, and fixed income, all from a single integrated account. Learn more at IBKR.com. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. The Short Squeeze Gang is still around. Robinhood shares fly high. Mixed news on the economic front. Employers are starting to lose a little confidence. And bond yields test the lows, then bounce. We have a great batch of listener questions, all this, and much more on episode number 726 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Another week is gone, and here we are moving to the heart of August, into the heat, into the brutal heat. Down here in South Florida, it's brutal. It's not so much just the heat, it's the humidity. And you know how it is. All around the country, we're getting hit with some pretty weird weather, and hopefully you're dealing with it. Hey, I'm Andrew Horowitz. I am the host. I'm the founder of Horowitz & Company, the host of the Disciplined Investor Podcast, the host, or should I say the co-host, of DH Unplugged. And I have uh, been doing this for some time. i got a couple of books that I've authored. They're still available, by the way. They're out there. This, the Disciplined Investor, Essential Strategies for Success, available on audiobook. Go over to Audible. Check it out. It's uh, that's, that's kind of where this all started. When I was writing this book, and the publisher that I was working with said, Hey, Andrew, why don't you check out uh, maybe trying to do a podcast and really looking to Help market the book. And I'm thinking, what's a podcast? <laughs> that was back in 2007. What's a pod? What, what do you mean? And we put it together, and it was pretty short, relatively light, unstructured, and built it into what we do today, which is provide you with the information that you need to become a disciplined investor, of course, and to secure your financial future. That's what this is all about chapter by chapter, just like the book, going through different ideas, concepts, so that you understand how to invest, how to research, how to understand what's going on with the markets, decipher the things that need deciphering that sometimes are, well, not so easy to pinpoint what's going on, but to deal with and understand how to make your way through it. Now, we have a lot of listener questions. I asked you to go and ask on Twitter. I said, hey, you got something to talk about? You have something you have a question about? Let's dig down and see if we could do some help. You know, for a long time, uh, during the pandemic, we had a Monday afternoon market roundup Q&A session. 
an open forum, and it really went over really well. Every single week for about a year, we spent looking at what was going on in the markets, in the world, with your portfolios, answering any questions you had with regard to finance. And that was really great. And I know a lot of people have a lot of questions. And sometimes you have no outlet, nowhere to really look, nowhere to really understand, uh, to, to find out uh, a good understanding of what your what, what, what is you should be doing. And it's kind of tough. I get it. Because even though sometimes I talk in what I think is relatively easy to understand language about the markets, about finance, about what's going on in the world economy, I understand that a lot of the things like, what? What, what is that? What is he talking about with, uh, you know, a, a labor number that is because of a particular statistical abnormality that, what is he talking about? And I know that sometimes the words, the phrases, the terms, the lingo, the lingo is, is a little difficult to really understand. So I try from time to time to give you the opportunity to ask any questions that you have. And a lot of you do take me up on that, send me those, and I do answer you by email. Well, today we're going to actually go and answer many of those questions, whether it was from Twitter whether it was from the Ask Andrew button over on the disciplinedinvestor.com. Whatever it was, however it was, we're going to get to a good stack of some interesting questions. Many of them I answered uh, outside that had a little bit more of a personal tilt to them. But before we get to that, I want to kind of reach out to many of you that are and have been on the sidelines. And I think that there's a lot of you out there that are listening. You're listeners. That's where you are, right? We have a podcast. It's audio. You're listening. But you're not acting. You're not in the game. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is that I had a few calls this week in particular. And I can always get the pulse of what's going on and how people are feeling. But if, if there's a standard number of, of, of calls that are coming in on a particular topic... And all of a sudden, they're concentrated into a very short period of time. And I had these calls this week. And a lot of people were paralyzed still. Unable to make a decision about what to do. Either they did something like pulled money out of the market and were unable to get back in. Or never did anything and wondering what to do now. But in, in totality, when I look at the summary and the average of the calls and I kind of think, what was the theme? What was the overarching message that I observed from these discussions? And it was all about the inability to make a decision, to do anything. The inability to act. So we've talked about this and I've tried to discuss how to overcome this. We talked about back a few months back and several months back, the idea of a very simple, very, very basic, you know, kind of baby steps of one foot in, one foot out, right? The idea that, you know, some uh, some money needs to be maybe seated in a portfolio and then found at home. And then from there, you start building a portfolio so that you don't, in fact, commit all of your money, all of your capital but with the understanding that being in the game at least partially, listen, you're not going to have a fish if you don't have a hook in the water. You could stand there all day, and this is serious. When I go fishing, 
We're out there looking, a lot of times looking for things. I'm like, you know, let's put some bait in the water. Let's just see what happens. There is no chance that we will catch any fish if we don't have that bait in the water. You are not going to make money. Nor are you going to lose, of course, but you're not going to make money. You don't have the opportunity to make money unless you have something in the game. And sure, there's risk. But there's also a risk in not doing anything. So let's get on it. I mean, seriously, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to motivate you to do something. I want you to stop sitting in the cheap seats and just listening and not acting. I want to give you a little bit of fire under the tochas, as they say, right? I want you to be able to figure out that maybe there's something you should be doing. It doesn't have to be all in. It doesn't have to be aggressive. But the one thing that I will tell you from all the people that we slowly but surely move back to positioning, and that positioning doesn't have to be in equities entirety, in its entirety. It doesn't have to be uh, all over in bonds or in real estate. It, it, could be, it could be diversified. And all the people, I think, become much more comfortable with the idea once you get that toe in the water. You know what I'm talking about, getting into that cold pool that seems halfway impossible. You just take that dip, at least get in somewhat, and then it's it's comfortable. You could deal with it. But it's kind of making that first move. So it's time to do something. Do something different from just doing nothing. And here is my final point. Just let's get it done. You can do it. I know you can. Use good, solid principles, disciplined processes, disciplined investing theories, and let's get it done. Because you want your portfolio, your opportunity to be better than it is today in the future. And more importantly, to have financial security, right? That's what it's all about. So... Let's talk about some of the things that are interesting. What's going on this week in the markets? Bonds. What a hoot. Hot and a hoot. Kind of one extra O makes them a hoot because we saw them test that 1.12% on the 10-year again as we saw that the ADP payroll numbers came in a little bit light and we saw them moving around pretty dramatically after that. What's really interesting is that there is a lot of theories out there and a lot of speculation as to why bonds are moving the way they're moving. So just for a moment, bear with me. Let's put aside the idea that there's an economic reason and a theory and correlations are in line and that's why things are happening and what they're doing. Let's put that aside for a second because that's the normal discussion. Let's talk about some of the other things that could be going on. For example... Maybe yields and prices are tracking the latest developments on the pandemic, both here and abroad. Maybe we've seen things like, yes, of course, we are seeing that there is a foreign investment. Maybe we're just seeing that there is the need for continuing purchases some for some reason by the Fed, and they're buying. I mean, there's a lot of things that we can kind of drum up. But sometimes Occam's razor, you know, this, this idea that, well, maybe the simplest and most obvious thing that's in our face and the obvious answer is, is generally preferable over more complex explanations, which we can come up with. Maybe it's just simply, hey, you know what? People are just thinking, uh, I got money. I got to put it to work. Where do I want to put it? 
Well, bond yields are low, but at the same time, they're safe and there's some safety there. And you do have a lot of, of movement in that area due to uncertainty and just people are just buying bonds. There's a lot of money in the systems, a lot of liquidity. So maybe it is the hedge fund positioning on the wrong side or government purchases or fill in the blank or whatever it may be, but it seems logical that although there's not people necessarily shying away for, from risk assets, it seems that they're moving money into every asset. It's kind of an all-asset move, an all-asset move into that. And I, I think what's interesting is that it is somewhat tracking, to a degree, the path of the pandemic right now with the Delta variant and all the news that we're seeing. And, of course, we have the tickers going up on how many people are hospitalized, how many people get the, the virus, and how many people die in this country. That country seems to be making its way back into the mainstream media again this whole discussion of what's going on. I think that the big issue here is that it's starting to freak people out a little bit. And the bigger issue that's going to really come from that, I think that's where we're going with this discussion, is what is that going to do for confidence overall? How is that going to play? How are we going to see that we can have both things, right, where we have the potential for all assets being pushed up, money that's liquid in the markets being pushed in, at the same time, confidence potentially waning due to the fact that we have all of this nonsense that's going on again in the news. And I think there's a lot of uncertainty that is brewing due to the pandemic and the direction of the virus and the vaccines and, you know, talking about that we need boosters now and then the WHO coming out and saying, hey, you know what? Do us a favor, will you? Hey, hey, developed world, developed countries and those modern countries, and those wealthy countries, do us a favor, will you please, for the rest of us? Will you, before you start doing booster shots, will you just dole them out to the other countries around the world that need them and have not yet had the opportunity to get their first vaccine? That seemed like a pretty logical ask. And then you have Germany and France saying, ah, <laughs> no. Sorry, we're going to give our own citizens boosters first. We're going to utilize everything that we have to take care of our own. Which the problem then is, you know, if in fact we need global immunity, that flies right in the face of that and that's stupid. But okay, let's just take care of our own, which is, I think, going to once again start a little bit more resentment. <laughs> I mean, a little bit more resentment. And that, that income disparity, that economic unfairness that we see around the world where you have the haves and the have-nots in a really, really big way. Um, so I think that when we're looking at what's going on, I think there is the potential for a, a confidence cut that is happening. But all that being the case and going back to the idea of, hey, I don't know what to do. Look at all these things in the news. Look at all these, these bad issues. Look at all these, these things that are happening. Oh. But there are these unknowns. But one thing that we do have see, we've seen, I mean, I mean, if you look at any chart going back 100 years of any asset class that has any kind of quality behind it, whether it's stocks and bonds, real estate, commodities, I mean, 
The probability is that long term, not one year from now, maybe not two years, not five years, but you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now, the probability is that you're better off investing it there in some degree, in some portfolio diversification, some allocation to a degree rather than just being in all cash, particularly in an in inflation ridden future. I mean, looking out, we have a lot of tomorrows from now. It's not just tomorrow that we're looking at. It's the future tomorrows. And the fact of the matter is that I think what you want to do is you want to significantly look at and, 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 and specifically look at who you are and what you want to be. Who you are and what you want to be. And if, in fact, you can kind of put aside all the nonsense that you hear, because don't forget, and we know this, everybody that listens to this show knows this. One of the things that we are acutely aware of is the need for the news media to prepare news for the media and the media to prepare the news. Because it's 24 hours of constant news. It's not like you're just going to listen for, okay, there's fine weather out there. Everything is fine. And here that 24 hours. No, they need to give you a shot of headlines to read. So keep that in mind when you're thinking about all the things that are going on, because many of you said for a while, hey, I am not going to invest right now because we are seeing this pandemic play out. But look at all the opportunity that was there right in front of your eyes. Time to act. Time to get it going. Time to get motivated yourself. Get in the game. Get that bait on the hook. Get that bait on the hook. And then just do a little dipping. Plenty of fish to catch. All right, we got plenty of listener questions. Let's say hello first to our good friends at Interactive Brokers. Because you know what Interactive Brokers is asking? They're asking if you're looking for ways to earn extra income. I'm asking you. Are you looking for ways to earn extra income? Well, there's something that they have over at Interactive Brokers. It's called the Stock Yield Enhancement Program. And it lets you earn extra income on fully paid shares of stock inside of your brokerage account. And essentially, here's how it works. It's pretty easy. Interactive Broker lends your shares to traders who pay interest to borrow them. And you receive 50% of the total take of the interest earned. It's that simple. Pretty easy to understand. You can open an interactive broker's account today and start earning extra income. Learn more at ibkr.com, S-Y-E-P. That stands for Stock Yield Enhancement Program. That's what it is. I'm getting an enhanced yield on my stocks that I own. Nothing changes in your portfolio. There's not a lot you have to do. And if you have an interactive broker's account, you can just turn it on. And you know what? There's an opportunity. Check it out. The Interactive Broker Stock Yield Enhancer Program, ibkr.com slash S-Y-E-P. So here we are with some listener questions. Got a couple from Twitter that came in that kind of interesting. We're going to go through those. Those are more short and sweet. <laughs> when people write emails, they're a little bit longer. So let's start with Twitter, Sean N., Kind of interesting. There's a lot of similarities in many of the Twitter questions, but I grabbed a bunch of these. Um, Sean Ann writes, he says, how long can the market go up until 
go up until the at everyone is expecting happen. I guess the crash. What are the signs and what kinds of things will cause the next crash? So it, it's interesting because if you've noticed and you studied history of markets, crashes happen for reasons and sometimes not. What I mean by that is we saw a major correction, crash, bear market, whatever you want to call it, back in March of 2020 due to the fact that, well, the world closed down. We saw some major catastrophe crash due to the financial system breaking down in 2007 through 2009, give or take, whatever day you want to look at that as. And that was due to the fact there was too much leverage in the system and there was excess speculation. Back in 2000, we saw a major crash of technology because people were just buying things that, well, had no value. And then all of a sudden, everybody kind of, uh, the, you know, the, the music stopped playing and the chairs were not available and things went wrong. Well, right now, I think this is all predicated on liquidity. Right now, we don't know what's going to cause the next quote-unquote crash. And if, in fact, we will see a hard crash, a lot of changes in the markets over the last year, a lot more retail involved. That could be good or bad. Retail right now has been a really good player in the area of, hey, let's buy the dip. Every dip, no matter what the dip is, no matter the reason for the dip, no matter why the dip happens, let's buy the dip. What are the kind of things? I think if the Fed makes some material missteps in their overall policy, that could be something. If the dollar falls out of bed or bond yields go a little bit wonkers, that could be a problem. The system is very fragile right now due to the fact that there is a necessity to have massive amounts of, well, um, oil, liquidity in the system in order to keep things going right now. And unfortunately, we're living in a world that borrows everything. So central banks around the world have been flushing cash into the markets, and that is is an issue because, you know, how long is it going to go on? And and more importantly, what stops that and breaks the cycle? Because we haven't been able to break the cycle since 2009. And if rates do go up, how is that going to really pressure cost factors for government bonds? That's one of the big issues right now. No wonder that rates are staying low, right? Because we need to have a, a, a lot. We're not talking about we're not talking about fifty dollars or hundred dollars here, right? We're talking about trillions upon trillions of dollars in debt, which is why we're starting to see inflation finally really spark up because they've gotten it out of control with the amount of borrowing and the amount of money and the debasement of currency. Why do you think that cryptocurrencies have become so popular? Because people are fed up. And all of this, if not played exactly right, if it's not, in fact, done in such a way that we thread every needle perfectly over the next several years, or the next year for that matter, there is the potential that if we have a liquidity event, that could be a major issue. There's a lot of leverage in the system right now. Uh, next one was from DD Invest, and the question was very simply, inflation hedge strategies. So I think we've talked about this, DD, or exactly what your name is there, uh, with regard to what is happening with prices and how, in fact, 
we have inflation. And even if inflation is transitory, what we're going to see is prices higher. Because we're seeing the price escalation go on, but yet the growth and the trajectory of the increase in pricing, the percent gain in pricing may in fact subside, but yet we're stuck with those higher prices. So we have inflation. So we've looked at things like precious metals to a degree. We've looked at commodities. We have TIPS, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. And frankly, some stocks. Value stocks, banks, energy, those are energy-related commodities, banks because of the spreads. These are areas that should give you a little bit of a benefit. However, let's not forget that in a runaway inflation environment, kind of everything sucks. Cash is terrible. Yes, precious metals may in fact hold up and some commodities may hold up. All assets. But in that kind of situation, you really want to look at a much different situation because there's very little that holds up to to run away rampant inflation. Because even if the stock market's up 200% and inflation's up 500%, like you see in a lot of the third world countries, emerging markets around the world, you're still at a deficit. Next question, uh, Mahir. Will copper continue to fly higher from current levels? Hmm. That's kind of interesting because we look at what is the, what is the reason that we're seeing and what is the catalyst for copper. And obviously we know that copper is in a lot of building, wiring, et cetera, a lot of industrial manufacturing processes and, and of course, housing. You know, you can't build a house, you can't really, um, well, some cars, you could do some cars, but generally you can't build a house or, or, or buildings or really do a lot in terms of uh, anything that has electric associated with it, really without decent copper. Cooking to a degree too, I guess. But, well, Copper, it does seem like there's some hoarding going on by China to a degree. There seems to be that there was a lot of hoarding going on by a lot of manufacturers, builders, uh, developers, people that are on the uh, raw materials side because they were concerned about the movement that we saw. We saw this exactly happening, for example, to a much greater extent with lumber. You saw lumber go from, what, 500 to 1,700, something ridiculous, then back down to 560 or so, still above where it was pre-pandemic, but the, that kind of escalation in price, that that parabolic move that was mountainous was something that was really kind of crazy, frankly, to a point that unsustain, it was unsustainable. There's a price equilibrium that comes eventually. Copper, still a lot of demand. Copper potentially could see long-term Benefits if the economies around the world continue to be in growth mode. And as we talked about with Didi's question just a moment ago, the idea you have here is that it does provide somewhat of a hedge to inflation. Next question comes from Bibi. So we had Didi and now we have Bibi. Uh, it was kind of interesting. This, this It took me a second to really think about this and uh, the question was dollar sign S-R-A-K. What are your thoughts? What I believe this is referring to is the new and about to become tradable short ARK investment uh, fund slash ETF. 
And the idea is, hey, let's go against this. Now, I'm not exactly sure why, in fact, if you want to bet against ARC, why not just simply bet against ARC? Why do you have to do this through a third party that's guessing what ARC is doing? So I'm not exactly sure. The concept is interesting if you want to go against a lot of the high flying, but they have an interesting way of, of uh, let's just say, managing the markets, feeding on the frenzy. Bought a big piece of uh, Robinhood last week, and what we saw was uh, during that time, it kind of held down by the lows of the pe- uh, of, of the IPO, and then the, uh, from there it started moving up in, in terms of uh, once she bought it, but then after that, a couple of days later, up 100%. And people get excited about that. So I think if you want to short arc, just short arc. Um, Matt Z, we're going to answer your question offline. Just let you know there. Doug, Doug M, he says, should SPACs be outlawed by the SEC given insider first in investors can immediately and revenue uh, sell and immediately revenue forecasts aren't scrutinized with the same diligence rigor of the normal IPO roadshow process? Eh, it's a great question. I mean, SPACs, there's some interesting ones out there. They've been around for a long period of time. They've been abused. Let's talk about the SPAC barkers. You know who they are. You don't hear much about uh, what's going on with Chamath, Polyhapatia anymore. And you see that uh, Mark Cuban and a few other guys have really been pumping and jumping on these deals. And they show you a one-pager, which is looking at, you know, outward, oh, over the next five years, the profitability, which is just something they scratched on a piece of paper, had somebody type up and post on Twitter. Ridiculous. And we see now some of these really ramped up because of the fervor in the retail investing community to get anything that could possibly move. And just by the very nature of the fact they want and will these things higher, they do. Now, there are some interesting SPACs out there, some ones that are very solid, that have been researched, et cetera. But yes, there is some problem, I do believe, and I agree with you, Doug, with the idea that that, that you are the investor, the retail public is second place with not a lot of transparency and potentially just there to line and fund the pockets of those that are doing the pipe and those that are doing the, uh, the actual offering. So one of the things that's definitely a hot button of mine, and you talk about this and you mentioned this about the revenue forecast not being scrutinized, I don't even understand how they get away with these one-page pieces of hullabaloo where they're looking at, you know, what's, you know, you look at these, the TAM, the total addressable market, and they're going to revolutionize. You know, these are some phrases that you need to really get used to and sort of put to the side when you when you read this. These emphasizing and fun phrases that are used in these back one-pagers or decks, if they even come to that, if somebody put the time in to do a full deck, more than just one page. I think I think what, what you have going on is is, is a tremendous lack of, of scrutiny by the SEC, and I, and I think that's going to be stopped. Um, so this question comes from Benjamin F., and he says, hey, Andrew, it's a little bit long. He says, I enjoy your podcast, both this one and DH Unplugged, and as I appreciate the bias towards hardcore market analysis. We're so hardcore. My own financial education took a meandering path, starting with my wife's effort to create and live by a budget almost 20 years ago. Eventually, we started to make headway by investing in real estate. 
The pace picked up when we switched from owning property to investing in it and real and investing in also in real estate syndications. I've also recently began developing a portfolio. Approximately 1% of our wealth has gone into startups via Republic.co, uh, AngelList, and other vehicles. This brings me to my question, which is your process for evaluating unconventional investment vehicles like real estate syndication or pre-state round for a startup. Also, in these situations, how do you avoid the analysis paralysis trap so that you make a decision, execute, and move on? I look forward to your answers. I have such a disappointing answer for you. Not in my wheelhouse. Not something we do. Pre-seed round startups, very difficult to really do an analysis and you have to, unless you have a team that really understands. And even that is a lot of speculation. It's really difficult. It's a lot of dart throwing that goes on in that business. The problem that you have here is that when you think about where it is and where you are in the stage of that investment, it's so early on and there's such a lack of executed performance that you can go back historically and look at and say, hey, is what they did last year or maybe the last six months or the last two years replicatable? So when you're dealing with those very new companies, different than small companies, new companies, pre-seed rounds for startup. I mean, think about that. You have to have some level of ability to scrutinize the books, the records, and how do you get that unless they put it out? And oftentimes, they're putting it out in the, in, in the best look. I think what you can do in those circumstances, if you really want to, there are a variety of ways to go out, look for, and find some of these. But many of these also require accreditation as well as the ability to put in large sums of money that you may or may not have. You may not want to commit $100,000, $200,000 to that one item. You may not want to really look at this one as a major component of your portfolio because you may want to diversify. You may want to look at the, the opportunity to put smaller amounts in more deals. And that's an important consideration. So I, I don't know. I, I find it very difficult to do so. We really don't deal with that. We're really on the public side. The developed or developing on markets so we can really get an understanding of gap related that is audited. So sorry, but not an area that we really focus on. Well, our next question comes in from Aaron. It looks like it's more of a, just a general fun question. Aaron asks, Hey, for a smile, ever thought about going vegetarian dream or nightmare? Everybody that knows about my grilling, my smoking and all the stuff that's going on there knows that it's going to be hard-pressed to really do like a uh, pulled brisket slash eggplant alternative in my diet or spaghetti squash on the Traeger tacos. I don't know. I've done them. It's fun, but ah, no. Jason G comes in with a question. He says, hey, Andrew, I always used to always assume without really thinking about it, that bear markets and U.S. recessions work together. But that does not always seem to be true, is it? Could you explain some past history where we've had some bear markets, but the economy was just fine? You know, the thing about bear markets, this idea of, which is traditionally looked at as a 20% drawdown from peak to trough on a U.S. equity market, whether it's small cap, mid cap, large cap, we've seen that in various markets. 
and the economy is being okay. There's different things that happen in different sectors that will actually fall into a bear market. We saw that, for example, in in uh, as rates were starting to come down again, we saw that in in, in certain uh, in in financials, for example, we've seen energy come down very dramatically recently. But no, we haven't seen the broad based S and P or the 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 Nasdaq necessarily or the Dow Jones do a bear market. And the bear market again is is this twenty percent idea. And then you also have to ask yourself, Jason, the chicken or the egg question. Did the drop in the markets cause the recession or really provide extra oomph to push us into recession? Or do we have a recession or a recession on the way that caused the stock market to drop? Right? See that differential? That's an important distinction. Usually what happens is they work hand in hand. We have supposedly a market that is supposed to be all-knowing, all-seeing, omnipresent, where we can have six months into the future that the market has a view of. That's the theory. I don't think that's as true anymore. It used to be, I think, when there was not information that was easily accessible at the touch of a button or that came at you right on your phone instantaneously, where people had a research and it took a lot longer to crunch numbers and Excel wasn't available to pull data in and just create a model immediately of what the outlook is. A little bit different. Took a little more time to really decipher everything. But I do think that there is obviously not only a relationship, but there's a maybe causation. Now, correlation, causation, kind of a different situation when you look at it. And depending on how you look at this, I think there are times that we talk ourselves into a recession. And some of that is based on the fact the wealth effect goes down. People pull back. And as you see markets going back and you see that your portfolios are losing money, you start to retract and you say, you know what? I need to conserve. And when you conserve, you're not spending. When you're not spending... Well, there goes consumer confidence, there goes retail sales, there goes ISM, manufacturing services, retail. All of that pulls back. It's all about confidence. So I think there's a bit of both involved in it. When we see a slowdown maybe coming, a situation happening, whether or not that turns into something worse or not is all dependent on the confidence level, also liquidity, also you know, how things are going in the markets, valuations, et cetera. Now, when you when you think about that, I think what that says to us is it really doesn't matter. And I don't think the labels necessarily are really that important. Because what if we go into recession but have a 19% pullback on the markets? And a 19% pullback on the markets probably has a 30% pullback on a lot of stocks underneath the indices. So I don't think it really matters, the labels. I understand what you're saying here. I think the bigger picture is much more important is that the direction of markets and of the economy, how do they work together? Usually what happens is you start seeing that in advance of economic breakdown or recovery, stocks move. We saw that in advance of the recovery off of last year's lows of the economy, stocks were on the move. We saw that even before cruise lines were open again to the public, the stocks are moving hard. So when we look at the overall dynamic of what's happening within the markets and then compare them and contrast them with the economy, I think there is a definite correlation, generally speaking, unless we're in times like we are now, where there is an unlimited amount 
of liquidity, funding, and just a, a, a kind of a view in the future of never-ending money to shower down upon us from up high. Whether it's called infrastructure bill, whether it's called stimulus, whether it's called ongoing payments, whether it's called um, child care credits, tax benefits, whatever it is. So I think that's kind of interesting. Hey, thanks so much for that question. What do we got now? Tim. Uh, Tim writes, he says, I hope you're doing well. Congratulations on my fishing team's recent success and what looks like to be a successful smoke fish tip. <laughs> Obviously follows me on my Instagram, which is a little account that I post up what I'm doing and what I'm cooking, how the food looks, what I'm eating. Dad bod food blog. Instagram. Dad bod. I got a dad bod. Dad bod food blog is my Instagram handle. Anyway, um, great podcast last week. Thanks so much. I always great, uh, like when Frank comes on. All right, quick question for either an email or a future podcast. Is my thesis is the Fed will be shifting purchasing of mortgage-backed securities to purchasing more treasuries. With this in mind, what sectors do you think will be impacted the most, positively or negatively? I'm assuming housing will be a sector to avoid during this time. It is safe to assume that infrastructure trade will be back on. Furthermore, Will the push short-term interest rates given the Fed purchasing more treasuries? If this happens, is the tech trade back on again during this time frame? How will this impact foreign stocks? Any insights are appreciated. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim. Well, I'm saying thank you, Tim, too. That's a lot to unpack right there and to really decipher, get through. But here's the deal. I think that the Fed is talking about slowing down purchases. I think the right thing for them to do is to take everything down I would say evenly because they start to move one side of the market versus the other, make a mistake, have less ability to write mortgages and back mortgages at low rates. That really slows down the housing market. Slowing down the housing market stops, you know, the inflationary impact. It also cuts down on workers. It also provides for all sorts of bad things they don't want to do. The housing market, the mortgages, the refinancing, the ability for that to happen for low uh, for, for reducing cost on mortgages for people that are refinancing helps out with the economy. The fact that people are buying houses uh, existing or new helps out with buying and purchases, with employment, with manufacturing, with just all sorts of goodies, right? Money is moving through the system, the velocity of money, and it is a component, big component of inflation. So therefore, we want to keep housing prices up, so said the Fed. So I'm not exactly sure if that's going to happen. I think that generally speaking, there will be additional um, pressure on the upside. I don't think you could avoid the fact that we are seeing inflation is going to be here for a while. We're hearing it more and more. And while we may not see the increases that are dramatic, prices will be higher. Therefore, we're going to have a problem because now affordability comes into the play. Why we saw a major drop, a seven-month low on existing and new home sales. I think it was new home sales. Uh, it was a seven-month low, I believe, in totality of the annualized amount of new homes being sold because, well, priced them out of the market because the cost of materials is so high and what we're seeing within the markets is a real problem. So, I mean, you know, there's kind of a push-me-pull-me game going on right here and a problem with respect to where we are in terms of how, again, to thread that needle of what to slow down, increase, or how to deal with the purchases of, of, of these bonds. So, I mean, it's a, it's a big, big, big problem right now. And I think 
The Fed is trying to send up a lot of trial balloons and trying to send up signals that can be tested how the markets are going to deal with them. I don't think in their wildest ideas or, or, or ever thought that interest rates would come down to the 1.12% level again and looking to possibly break down here and there with all that's going on. And whether or not they're actually pushing it, pulling it, well, that's possible. They can do it. But I don't believe that they're going to want to see interest rates really come up that much on mortgages, although one factor is true. If we do see interest rates start to come up on mortgages without the backing and the buying of the Fed, that's a bit better for the banks. So again, I think from here on, assuming we don't enter into a, re, uh, a recessionary time, we don't see a full-blown lockdown, which I've explained on DH Unplugged last week, where I think that's a, a financial and a mathematical impossibility. I just don't see it happening because there's no money to do so. And what we're seeing right now is the the effects of all of that and and interest rates just appear to me to be potentially at give or take at a low right now unless there is all of a sudden new input, right? That to change the story. If the pandemic outbreak gets so intense the world closes down, that's a whole different discussion. We see this Delta variant taking over and the hospitalizations and deaths spiking, people pulling back. Again, different discussion. The The direction of where we are is not good for all this. We're not going to get into a whole pandemic discussion, but it's not good. And probably why we're seeing such a move, a move down in rates that we've seen over the last several months. Tracks pretty perfectly. However, I still think that Banks have an opportunity, potentially long-term. You know, uh, not. it's going to take some while to flush out. We've got to find out exactly where that is and, you know, how much of an opportunity. It's good. Tech. Tech is just being bought because tech is being bought right now as a proxy for, well, they got good cash on the books. They could do refinancing of their debt. They could issue more debt at very low cost. They are, can do buybacks and their cash cows. Eh, good safety trade. I think that's what's happening with tech right now. Even with some of the numbers that were questionable uh, in terms of the outlook, you know, they're still buying it. So something to think about. It's very difficult to discern what the Fed's going to do. I've tried to stop guessing because it makes no sense to me that they're continuing doing what they're doing right now with the major purchases of $120 billion per month spread between treasuries and mortgages. It makes no sense in the world to me. So I've stopped guessing and just said, you know what? Let's just look what the most obvious issue is and go from there. So, hey, thanks so much for your questions. Uh, some of the other questions, if I didn't get to them, I will send you an email. So that's uh, something to look forward to, hopefully, from me. Uh, if you do have questions in the future, do me a favor. Go over to thedisciplineinvestor.com and go to the Ask Andrew button. So, hey, what is the lesson we learned this week? Aside from some of the answers to some of these questions, one thing, right? You got to bait the hook and you got to put it in the water if you want to catch fish. Bait the hook, put it in the water, catch fish. Say it with me. Bait the hook, put it in the water, catch fish. Makes sense to me. Thanks so much for joining me. Have a great weekend. I'll see you again soon. Next week, in fact. Bye-bye. discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, 
The information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company.